You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, normal people, to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. And our topic today is getting inside the head of Paul and Jesus. And our guest is Sarah Rudin. Yeah, we have an interesting conversation with Sarah, who is a PhD from Harvard University in classical Never philology. Heard of it. And she was at the U- University of Cape Town as a lecturer in classics. She's written a few books and uh, yeah, just a fascinating conversation. She's clearly very bright and yeah. really appreciated her ability to maybe kind of cut through the noise sometimes, I think, of academia and just kind of mm-hmm. come to some really creative and interesting insights. Yeah, I mean, namely about translating the Bible, and that may sound uh, boring, mm-hmm. but that's maybe only because a lot of translations are boring, and that's sort of her part. She doesn't really say that. She's too nice. But instead of just trying to be, like, mechanically accurate, and that's one thing that a lot of translations have in common. They say things a little bit differently but they're very similar in terms of this mechanical attention. She tries to enter into the head of the ancient person, and you know that, that sounds a little esoteric, but it's really not. It is an act of imagination, but it's an informed— Yeah, it's very practical, too. It seems like, as she was talking, I just kept thinking, well, duh. I mean, I think yeah, exactly. Important. It makes sense, sense you right. know, because these are real people trying to move other people with their words. And that's the thing that a lot of translations— miss, you know. One thing I was I was thinking about, Jared, is that, you know, like how can we get into that just with our own English Bibles and right. stuff was sometimes I, I tell students like just stand up and read it out loud as if you're reading this to people and actually trying to convince them of something. And even if the translation isn't great, that at least maybe reproduces a little bit of the sense of what this biblical literature was really intended to do. It was an attempt to persuade people on, a, on an emotional level, not mm-hmm. just on, say, an intellectual level. And that's – if I had a capture, that's what I think Sarah was trying to bring to the table through her vast experience in translating Greek and Latin classical texts and then turning your attention to the Bible and coming at it from just a very different point of view than most conventional translation committees come from. I, I'd love for her to do a, a Bible like Robert Alter we had on a few right. weeks ago. Yeah, who did the translation. Right, right. and just mm-hmm. do do like a New Testament like that. And what would it look like? I would love to read something like that. Yeah, let's get to this conversation. I'm really excited for you guys to hear from uh, Sarah here on uh, getting inside the head of Paul and Jesus. In a couple places, he you know he makes dirty jokes. Uh, for for example, you know in in, in Galatians, he 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 wants he wants his critics castrated, and, and he's 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 on the subject of circumcision, and and he just loses his temper and he says they just ought to go castrate themselves. This did lead me to to want to look at the scriptures with fewer presuppositions. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Sarah, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thanks. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So, so uh, you know, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners a bit and just, 
you know, who you are and what you do and, you know, maybe even how you got into this whole issue of translating things. That'd be really interesting to hear. Okay. Well, I guess I, I have to describe myself as a hayseed translator. <laughs> I, I'm from rural Ohio. Uh-huh. Both my parents are from farms. And I was raised in, in Wood County, um, so surrounded by fields, though pretty early on I, I imbibed this urge, you know, to learn, to learn ancient languages, and I'm still not sure where I got that urge, but I was a, quite a pretentious child, so. <laughs> and, and anyway, um, Bowling Green State University was close by, my father was teaching there, so I was able to learn, start learning Latin at 16, Greek at 18. And started a PhD program at Harvard at 21. I was uh, trained in what they call philology, which is the study of of texts, not not language. That's linguistics. But philologists are are concerned with well, classical philologists are are concerned with Greek and Roman texts. So yes, I, w- I was trained in that, but I was always more interested in translation, which they don't allow you to study at, at Harvard, or they didn't at that at that time in the classics department. But I was a poet from a very very early age. I would say my mother says, you know, from the age of one or two, um, I was <laughs> I was composing composing poetry. I started publishing it in my my late twenties, and um, yes, I, I was just always. Absolutely fascinated with the sound of words. So, so how did that intersect with uh, maybe a little bit of your faith upbringing? At, at you know, get a little bit of your upbringing with philology, but how does faith fit into that? Well, I was raised a Methodist. I became a Quaker around the age of thirty, and it was only some years later. This was was after I returned from um, ten years in South Africa that I became interested in sacred literature. And this does have to do with my Quaker faith. It was through a Quaker institution, uh, Pendle Hill Quaker Study Center, that I began uh, exploring the the letters of Paul, because Quaker Quakers wanted to know more about them, and it it actually suited my take on literature to start exploring, and and, and the Quaker tradition as well to to start exploring. From from brass tacks, hmm. I'd always, as a poet, been concerned with originality. I didn't want other people's words, and this was this is a hmm. bit of a of a of a strange obsession. When I was a kid, you know, I would listen, and people would always seem to be saying the things that other people said, and it irritated me. So so part of my poetic development was to figure out other ways to say things, and. That helped me, I think, in thinking about things in different different ways. And this led me to Quakerism, helped lead me to Quakerism, because, you know, Quakers, they emphasize silence. We Quakers think that in the presence of God's love and power, there, there isn't a lot that human beings can initially say. We worship in silence, we sit together, and mm. we wait on God's will. So... This did lead me to to want to look at the scriptures with fewer presuppositions, hmm. institutional, ideological, personal, um, all all the things that are brought to the Bible that may not have been there originally. So I was very very pleased that that Quakers, you know, asked me, "Well, what can you tell us about Paul?" Yeah. That, that we didn't know, that we're not going to learn from standard translations. Yeah, so, so Sarah, I mean, back up a little bit, because you said that um, you, you came to an interest in sacred literature a little bit later. So, after you came back from Cape Town? Yes. I think, is that right? So, so at what point in your life did you start getting interested in translating and dealing with the New Testament, let's say? And then also on top of that, the Hebrew of the Hebrew Bible, right? Because you, your background is Latin and Greek, and you just sort of picked up Hebrew? Well, n- no, it's kind of a longer story. Okay. Um, yes. <laughs> I um, hope so, because there's a lot of discouraged students out there who think somebody can just, well, well I mean, you have a background in languages, so you know, you, you know how languages work, and you're going to pick up things a little bit more quickly, probably. But Right, right. I emerged from Harvard not academic. They okay. didn't really know what to do with me. 
Uh, because here I was a, a poet, I was a translator. This is, at least back then, I, I got my doctorate in 1993. At least at that point, you couldn't sell a classical philologist or somebody from a classical philology program to a university for a junior professorship. It just it just didn't work. Things were not um, interdisciplinary enough at, at that point. So here they were, you know, trying to sell me to somebody. And the only department in the world that was buying was the classics department at the University of Cape Town. So off I went there, and there was just too much political upheaval for, for the classics department even to survive. So I, I got off the tenure track after, after three years, but I, I stayed in South Africa because I had fallen in love with the country. It is, it is fascinating. It is beautiful and it was wonderful and so I, I stayed uh, nearly 10 years in all in in South Africa uh, between nine and ten years and did all kinds of of things you know business volunteering medical I did some medical writing and editing and but I I, I really got to work on on my classics translation while I while I was there but I really eventually wanted to come home, so um, came home to the, the U.S. and then spent some time in, at Pendle Hill as, as, a resident, as a resident student in this Quaker institution. And that is where they began purely by accident. It emerged that, that yes, I could, I could tell them about Paul in the original Greek. So, yeah, I thought, wow, I'm going to write this book. So I, I wrote a book called uh, Paul Among the People, which is about, here's a subtitle, Paul reinterpreted and reimagined in his own time. Hmm. That is, I was trying to get into, in, into Paul's head. Well, uh, tell us about that. I mean, what, what did you find there with your own approach to translation that maybe others hadn't thought about or just something that caught you by surprise or just something that if you're, if you're trying to capture Paul for other people, you know what I mean? What, like, how, how would you present Paul and is just who he is to people who might just be interested? What insights did you gain? Well, you know, I was already used to getting inside authors' heads or, or at least trying to. So I had published several classics translations at, at this point, and I still I was and I still am interested in the reform of ancient literature translation generally. So when you're translating, say, Virgil, you're translating the Aeneid, you read the text in the original, and this was Latin, of course, and again, read it again and again, and you think about the author in his own cultural context. You think about his struggles as an artist. You, you think about just all kinds of things, and you try to make an emotional connection to him. Emotional connection for me is more important. I mean, we factually, linguistically, we kind of know all about these authors. You know, all that work has been done. There are mountains and mountains of scholarly publications and very, very good commentaries, you know, line by line, exactly what it's likely that he meant by this word or that word. But to see this author as a whole, and more importantly, to hear him, you've got to think about him as a person. You have to enlist as his servant, if you will, as his interpreter for the world. And this is the thing that I thought from a very young age had not been done properly. Hmm. You have these dutiful, dull, penguin classics. You know, they ha you have these condescending translations for the masses. And yeah, okay, in a clunky way, they are accurate. But they do not bother at all with aesthetics. And the reason these, these works are important is, th is that they were to their hearers, gorgeous. These authors were the rock stars. Hmm. They were the most exciting thing going. St. Augustine describes his Virgil fandom. <laughs> How, <laughs> you know, as quite a young kid, he's, okay, he's reading Virgil in school, and he adores it. He's so excited about it. He's, he's caught up in the tragedy of Dido. This is, this is the um, Phoenician queen with whom Aeneas, the Roman 
hero, proto-Roman hero, is in love and he has to leave her, you know, to go to Italy and, and found what will become Rome. So, yeah, so, so Augustine is, this is his great sin, his temptation, his, his attachment to, to the beauty of, of, of Virgil. So, so, you're trying to recreate that beauty for somebody like Paul, for readers today, to really maybe move beyond things like, yeah, this is linguistically accurate or this is historically accurate, but you're not reading Paul really, right? Because you're not in his head or you're not really recreating the aesthetic or even the emotion, of reading Paul, right? Yes. Now, and Paul for Paul, that's that's very important because you know you read him. I'm for reading sacred literature as books. That is, forget for a little while about you know no matter how precious it is, forget for a little while about the liturgical use of these books. Forget about the Bible study. That is, you take a little passage and you go into that. You you deal with things piecemeal. This is the normal way they're dealt with. I'm I'm for reading sacred literature as books continuously as stories, so that they have they have something like, in translation anyway, they have something like the the original flow. They have something of the dynamism. So you're going from here to there, and you know taking a not not only a narrative but an emotional journey not only an argumentative journey, but an emotional journey with these authors. And this is, I think, the way that you see their world. And Paul is really interesting in this, in this sense, in that he's, he's, he's got a really distinct personality. He's, uh-huh. he's, he's, he's bad-tempered. <laughs> he's got a sense of humor. He is very, at, at times, he's, he's very tender, uh, very loving toward his followers. At times, he's absolutely fed up with them. He, is he sarcastic? He's sarcastic. Thank goodness. That's oh, my love yes, language. That's yes. why I like Paul so much. Anyway. Mm, yeah. yeah. He's, he's self-righteous. And, no, then, it's not me. And no. Then, yeah. Oh, no. Go on. <laughs> yeah, go on. And then he, then he backs off from it. And this is, this is kind of the inspiration of Paul, in that he knows his faults, Yet he's still, to some degree, under the control of them, but ultimately not, because he never allows them to get him down or to distract him for long, to deter him. He goes on and on. That is, that is the miracle of Paul, that he keeps, he keeps going. And so I hear what the phrase that comes to my mind is, is putting Paul kind of in his emotional and aesthetic context where there's this like spiral uh, of interpretation uh, where we're kind of trying to extrapolate from the text themselves kind of the ethos of Paul and then that may shape again how we go back and reread that um, text uh, my, my question would be how, how do we avoid or how have you found avoiding putting your own kind of emotional or aesthetics. You had talked about kind of not going to it with presupposition, but when we get in this realm of aesthetics and emotion, it feels pretty subjective. So how do you, how do you navigate that? Right. Well, how, how I handled it, uh, how I continued to handle it with, with, with sacred literature translation, it, is that I, I build, try to build a huge amount of context. Now, you know, when you're in a classical studies doctoral program at Harvard they just <laughs> cram you with books you you read all kinds of things great great variety so i do have in my in my head in storage you know a, a lot of a, a great many pagan works and i i tell biblical scholars that you know i i respect their work tremendously but they haven't read the dirty books. Uh-huh. It is true. They haven't. Yeah. You know, try to find a, a professor at a divinity school who has read Aristophanes or Petronius or the Priapus poems. And there, it, it, I, I got to be fair, you know, that, that in recent generations, there, there is more experience with, with popular literature, but um, it'd be very hard to find a biblical scholar. And, and those things kind of put meat on the bones, so to speak. It, it is giving you this broader context in the world in which Paul lived, where, like for me growing up, we sort of put the Bible 
outside of t- space and time. And by reading it next to Aristophanes and other things, you're, you're sort of making these connections, it sounds like, that gives you this fuller, more robust picture that's not two-dimensional, but makes Paul human with human emotion and, and the ups and downs of all of that. Right, yeah. You, you, I mean, when you think of him, he's... In a couple places, he, you know, he makes dirty jokes. Uh, for for example, you know, in in, in Galatians, he 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 wants he wants his critics castrated, yeah. and, and he's 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 on the subject of circumcision, and and he just loses his temper, and he says they just ought to go castrate themselves, or or be castrated. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, anyway, I think it it helps to understand the he he was raised in um the midst of a pagan culture. Tarsus is was an important port city. So he's in a Jewish household, but he's he's just surrounded by the pagan culture and he 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 does have pagan literary education. So in in that context, you know, you go to dinner parties where pretty much everything anything goes. You know, and you drink, and you make jokes, and it's it's a little hard to place, well, impossible, in fact, you know, to place Paul precisely. Okay, so who did he associate with? What would he do? Um, you know, what were his limits as, as an observant Jew? It's it's really hard to tell. The, the diaspora is really complicated. But... You know, he has a sense of humor that you can find parallels to, you know, in all kinds of, of, of pagan authors. You know, he, he definitely has this, you know, uh, rhetorical manner. So he's, he's just kind of grabbing at anything. You know, he needs to get attention. He needs to be clever. He needs to, he's, he's arguing, you know, to, to the pagan world, with, which has a very high standard for entertainment. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So if you kind of balance him out in the in this way and say, well, this is like this author, um, this is like this genre, then you have a whole lot of evidence. You've got a whole lot of support for a new cast that you want to put on a passage of his, mm-hmm. and you can you can tell you have some confidence and say, no, this isn't just me. Yeah. I'm, I'm not just goofing off here. I'm not just entertaining myself um, and doing something different for for its own sake. No, I actually have some support here, and I can build a whole structure of rhetoric in which to in which to imagine him. Yeah, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to 
upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. And I think imagining him is a helpful phrase because, I mean, we shouldn't fool ourselves. This isn't about objective historical study, but it's trying to dive into the time more deeply and and drawing some conclusions about how you might want to present this person that has some verisimilitude. You know, it, it makes sense even if you don't know completely. Now, some might say, well, that's really taking sort of a subjective kind of risk and we want to be more accurate. But of course, that's nonsense because, I mean, I, I think the way, you know, many Christians that we – you know, deal with and we're familiar with these communities. Like Paul and his context mean, while well, he's got the whole Greek thing happening there, the Hellenism, he's also got the Jewish part, and you have to remember those two things. But in at least in popular thinking, it doesn't go much deeper than that. But you're actually trying to imagine what Paul's influences might be that can never make it into a history book, right? Right, yes. And I, I think influences is important here. You can't say that you're translating in the true sense, I, I believe anyway. You can't say that you're doing this if you disregard the author's will, the author's drive to communicate. And this is the problem that I have with standard translations, if they are flat, if they are dull, if they don't have, if they don't reflect the mood and the sound and the performance of the original, you know, this song and dance that the author, the ancient, every ancient author, you know, very energetically went through, you are really not collaborating in what that author meant to do. And and on the evidence did very effectively for his for his original original audience. I'm Chuck Hess from Denver, Colorado. Like what you hear? Consider becoming a patron. For as little as one dollar per month, you can help support this podcast. Sign up at patreon.com/slash the Bible for Normal People. I love supporting the Bible for Normal People, a podcast that constantly stretches my thinking about the Bible. Although I don't agree with everything that's said, it forces me to genuinely reconsider my convictions about God and the Bible. If you can't afford to financially support Pete and Jared, then consider sharing this podcast with others. If you're really feeling inspired, rate this podcast on whatever platform you use. These actions help spread the podcast to others and broaden its reach. I would like to take the remaining time to thank our producers group, of which I am proudly a part. This group offers insight and feedback to Pete and Jared in order to make the podcast the best it can be. Of special note, we'd like to thank Skip Sorelli, John Thomas, Peter Hack, Peter John Avis, Amy Obrist, John Aldrich, Jonathan Lee, and Christopher Zenner. And now, back to what you've been waiting for, more of Pete and Jared. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole, there are a ton of reasons why that might not ever happen in Bible translation because of marketability and keeping constituencies happy and things like that. You don't want to be too risky. But do you, I, I mean, which is a shame. Do, do you have, okay, this is the worst question to ask somebody like you, but I'm asking it anyway. Do you have a favorite English Bible translation? I get asked that all the time. My answer is always not really. But, <laughs> do, I mean, do you have – like if someone were to ask you that question, just someone in the Quaker meeting would ask you, what's a good English translation for reading Paul? Do you have an opinion on that? No, not really. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, in, in uh, the book after Paul that I wrote about, about Bible translation, uh, Face of Water, I compare the different ones – and it was, you know, different, you know, very popular Bible Bible translations. And it was a very, very depressing experience because you would take Bibles that you would think would be quite different, Jewish study Bible, for one, a Catholic Bible, um, the New Revised Standard Version, and say the Revised Standard Version, um, you know, a, a whole a whole array. And you would find that that they they look almost identical. Uh-huh. They are just making the typical passage tiny adjustments. And this is this is very frustrating for me when I we now can see, for example, in, in the Lord's Prayer, 
that you you have that line, you know, give us give us this day our daily bread. Daily is definitely not on as a translation. The word can't mean that. Really? Yes. It, you just ruined my life. Can I explain sorry. that further? <laughs> yes. No, it means... Everyone out there is dropping to their knees right now. <laughs> just, okay, it probably yeah. means tomorrow's bread. It's okay. literally the bread that's coming on. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean daily. That was just a sort of mistake, translation of convenience since then. So does it literally mean tomorrow's, like the bread for the next, the 24-hour period? Is it something I more metaphorical? I think that's the best, no, the best translation would be tomorrow's bread. I've heard it uh, like eschatological bread. Oh, yes. No, see, that's, it's a compound word with usia in it, and it was, it was misdivided. They made, they made a um, error in construing that word. So part, back, back part up. Of the who word, made the error? Well, it was in ancient manuscripts. In the the Vulgate Bible. So this is this is the Latin Bible. It appears in the. It's it's being put together around around the end of the fourth century A.D. Mm-hmm. And the Vulgate Bible was to to become standard in the you know throughout the West, right? Um, in Western Christendom. This is Jerome. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 So. He was by this time the error had been established that they would see in this in this Greek word the part of it that looked like usia, which means the essence. So the other part they saw was epi, on. So the compound they saw was on the essence instead okay. of what it really means is going toward. <laughs> oh, but mm-hmm. um, so it gives so, it that future sense. Yeah, yeah. So, Jerome, anyway, was convinced that this meant the panem super substantialum. So, give us our bread that is transcendent. So, it is epi, super, usia. Yeah, being, like super being. Super being, yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, he yeah. saw, he, he, had, he had made this into a, a metaphysical bread. Okay. And it, it's pure error. There, there is no, there's no chance that that it was meant this way by the author. So what does t- uh, tomorrow's bread mean? What do you think that means? Getting into Jesus's head, I guess, is what we're doing now. Right. right? Yes. I don't know. Yeah. I I don't I don't really know. Um Yeah. She's the philologist. She just she just points out all the mistakes and then well, asks everybody I, else to figure I that out. I guess more theologians I wish more theologians <laughs> would say I don't know. You know, that's that's so that's a good point. I I should have an opinion. I wrote um you know, I I was composing all these experimental translations for for the book Face of Water. Face so of water. so mm-hmm. I said the next loaf. Our huh. loaf, the next loaf, give it give it to us today. And and I I related that to to the anxiety of yeah. of ordinary people for for getting their next ration. So you're talking about loaves, it's not bread, but it's a loaf. That's really important. So you have these standard loaves, they're they're made with molds. So and and you get the loaf as a ration from the household. So if you're a slave, you get your bread or your 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 loaf or your hunk of loaf. And, and they're 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 perforated, so they rip apart. It's kind of a pie shape, so you get mm. your your wedge of your wedge of bread as an as an individual. If a loaf of, is being broken up, so or you get also you get loaves as a dole from the state if you're if you're poor. Mm. So this is this is these are the people who are hearing and speaking this prayer. You know they are they are lowly people. They are slaves. They are poor citizens. They are they are foreigners. People throughout the em, the empire, and so the the some of the archaeology that's that's happened um, shows that if, if slaves who were laborers were more or less starving, um, they they weren't fed enough. So think of the point of view of somebody who is you know he he gets his ration and eats it pretty fast or maybe save some but as soon as he gets it he's thinking of the next one hmm. yeah so it's a plea for god to be there continually providing yeah we can count on you yes to, yeah okay that's really interesting My goodness, yeah. okay well <clears throat> i i appreciate the deep dive into this particular verse but something you said earlier has it, it just struck me in a way that i hadn't thought of before and you can't so let go of it i can't let go of it i gotta test this so 
you, 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 keep came, you keep coming back to authorial intent, right? The intention of Paul, the attention of Jesus. And what I hear you saying is maybe, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, so that's why I want to test it with you. But what I hear is in the history of translation, we've talked about authorial intent, but we've really only talked about like half of it, which is kind of the, I would call it like the logocentric side of it, where it's like we're, we assume they're always just like constructing arguments and we're trying to like pull the emotion out of all of it because that's kind of the less risky thing to do. It's the more quote objective thing to do. But what I hear you saying, which I think is fascinating and I'd never thought of it. And I think it's actually really valuable to say is that if we're trying to understand authorial intention, we can't strip it of its emotion and its aesthetics. And it's, there's some texture that I think we are scared of. And in order to be quote unquote objective or mechanical or accurate, we've lopped that out of the equation. And I hear you saying we should, we need to bring that back because these are people who are writing these things. And if we're talking about their intention and what they were trying to communicate, communication is more than just words on a page or more than just the logic A plus B equals C. There is a lot more to it than that. Would that be a fair way of what, what you were saying? Yes, that's very helpful. I, th- I think that is a, a, a fair way. Yes. So when you're thinking, you, you're thinking not only of a authorial intent, but you're thinking of the reception of the text. Right. And mm-hmm. reception studies have become really important in, in, in recent years. So the really fascinating thing to me about, one of the fascinating things to me about, about sacred literature is, is its very excited reception. Hmm. This is and, and and for the New Testament, this is particularly important. What was it about these books that brought such an exciting message, you know, such a warmly received message to so many people throughout the Roman Empire? And these were people, you know, from very different backgrounds, but they responded, you know, with tremendous enthusiasm to the message, but also the form. And, you know, one, one thing I, I can't repeat enough is that form and content are, are more closely fused in ancient literature. Hmm. You're, you're going to school, okay, you're a typical boy in the educated classes, and, and the main thing you learn all through school um, is literature and speaking and how to express yourself. And um, this is not really about argumentation. It's more about um, formal speaking. Mm-hmm. It, it's more about ornate and performative and dramatic speaking. Isn't the point of that – I mean, this is – I mean, I know a little bit but not very much about this. But is, is the point of this to make an emotional appeal? Mm, yes. To, to, to sway people and not just to like convince them logically. But you want to almost – draw them into your way of looking at things and, and on an emotional level, right? Right, right. So as a typical use to which this education was put um, was speaking in the law courts. And in the law courts, the, the law, the technicalities of the law, the, the, the letter of the law meant diddly squat. Um, you would only refer to it, you know, very occasionally, mostly you were going in there and telling a story and putting on a song and dance and bringing people to your point of view. Now, that's your point of view as an individual. Sacred literature is very different in that it, it's, it's built to communicate on all occasions and to all kinds of people. So it is a supercharged rhetoric. It is of an intensity and a, an applicability, a breadth of applicability that, that really has no comparison. So... You know, imagine, imagine the the challenges to a simple-minded translator, thinking about the enormity of of this this literary achievement, and how did you start approaching it? You know, I, I must be crazy. <laughs> Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. 
This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Can I, can I make a leap here? I want to I see, because I think there's also, I, I keep thinking of, you know, I, I love hearing about translation work. But I also know like our listeners aren't really ever going to go try to translate the Bible. But I, I see some parallels and even like things like I started in my mind with like Shakespeare, where even though it's written in English, in some ways, I think it needs a translator for a lot of people today, like figuring out what it what it means. Like, you know, when you talk about the wittiness and the sarcasm of Paul, I feel like some of that gets lost with Shakespeare, which seems ultra formal to us today. But what he was really trying to do is, you know, was was widely recognized in his own day in a different way than maybe how we would see it. And I wonder, when we think of the New Testament and the Old Testament and people who just read English, like, what are some principles that you've learned in your translation work that might help people approach the Bible differently, even if they're just reading it in English? Because I think some of what you're saying, even even as I think about the New Testament in English, some of what you're saying to kind of make Paul human and understand it that way impacts how I would even read it in English. So do you have other ways of thinking that may help people who aren't going to translate, but just read the Bible in English? Oh, well, read my books. <laughs> she says shamelessly. Um, there you go. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example because we I, teed that one up for you, didn't we, Sarah? <laughs> okay. That's it. All right. Yeah, I do not see anything in the the original text that other scholars do not see. Mm-hmm. It's all right there. You can find it in in footnotes. There, there are ways that you can get at it, but my goal is to make it much more accessible, you know, to bring it out, incorporate it in that translation. If it can't be expressed, and there, there aren't many cases of this, but then if, if it can't in any way be expressed English, then an accessible footnote will do. But that, that really hardly ever ever happens, and, and I'm just continually tearing my hair, you know, when I, when I see what hasn't been, you know, could easily be included in a passage, but, but hasn't been, because people are nervous. They think about the reaction of the Sunday school class, and of, of the Bible study class, and, and they think, oh, no, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. But, mm-hmm. you know... I'm a Quaker, so what can they do to me? Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm not I'm not part of that culture, and, and in fact, you know, I, I do a, a, a lot of 
lecturing and discussion with mainline churches, Catholic churches, evangelical churches, and, you know, that I, I find in, you know, my actual experience that, you know, even quite conservative readers of the Bible are not resistant to translations that are more accurate mm-hmm. and more nuanced, more literary, and they're kind of tickled, in fact, to find out yeah. that, that in, for, for example, in Matthew and Mark, uh, there's the scene of Jesus with the, the Syrophoenician woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, she's, she is of Canaanite extraction, she's Phoenician, so, you know, huge differences from, from Judaism. And she barges in to Jesus and demands for her daughter. Yeah. And he, in standard translations, makes this really cutting remark, tells her that she's asking that the children's bread be tossed to the dogs. That it that doesn't say dogs. Really? It says little doggies. Little doggies? It's not kunes. Little doggies. It's not kunes. Little doggies. It's not kunes. It's kunaria. (laughs) Kunes would be an insult. You know, dogs, filthy, outcast animals. So unacceptable ethnic groups. Fine, that that would be an insult, but that isn't what it that isn't what the Greek says. The Greek says kunaria, which is a Rare diminutive. This is the only time it, it occurs in all of Scripture. These these two incidences, these two twins. So it's both in Matthew and Mark. It's Matthew and Mark. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and this is a word that you would find in Aristophanes. You find it in a sort of comical passage of of Plato, and it means little doggies, and it's a funny word. It's a cute word, and. And she throws it right back at him. And he's apparently delighted, and he says, because, you know, because of what you said, um, your daughter's healed. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. So maybe take, take a second and, and reframe, right? So there's one way of taking this, which is Jesus is insulting this woman, and she kind of bitingly comes back, and it, it's a very serious episode. So given this change, even in that one word to little doggy, maybe give us a sense then of, of the tone and the the yeah the tone and the texture of this and how is it how is it different okay you you have to go and look at the literary context this is this is a process that i was describing before so you have to go to other examples in ancient literature to see what the tone is of this word and how it's typically used so it doesn't mean puppies it's not simply little dogs it's cute little dogs <laughs> lap dogs so you got to think uh so so we're we're two removes cultural removes this is not a term that you could easily imagine the historical jesus saying so he's speaking in aramaic and he you know he's he's a provincial jew a, a pious one so he doesn't you would think have any conception of lap dogs this is what we're really talking about, lapdogs, in, mm-hmm. in the Greek or Roman experience. So, this is not what he's saying, but the tradition has it. He, he said something that the, the Greek author or the Greek-speaking author interprets as cutie dogs, lapdogs. And in, in pagan literature, the dogs being fed under the table, the dogs getting scraps, are getting them at some kind of joyous very generous, very rich feast. So, mm-hmm. we're talking, okay, theologically about the eschatological banquet. This is the feasting in heaven at the end of time. And there is so much food there that, you know, even the dogs under the table, they get stuffed. And that's hmm. the image that you find in comic literature, such as, as the, the novel The Golden Ass, mid-2nd century A.D., so there's a, a a wedding banquet on this the the bride is rescued from fearsome kidnappers and she's a she's a very rich very noble young lady so so the whole town just just has this wild feast and 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 this is the best thing that's ever happened you know that she is safe and she's married and and the dogs the dogs are are rendered just helpless and bloated they eat so much <laughs> yeah 
That's the ultimate. That's the ultimate joy. And and you gotta you know think about the the general poverty that prevailed in the ancient world. You know, yeah. you feast and you eat meat. You know, a couple times a year if you're an ordinary person and and you're kind of hungry all the time. But and and then for the dogs to get enough. That's that's amazing. So you know, think of this in in relation to to the the people of the the multi ethnic audience, mainly of people with pagan backgrounds who are who are reading the gospels um as the christian religion spreads and this is themselves right Mm -hmm. they are included they are heirs to the kingdom also everybody the most ordinary people they can imagine you know a, a banquet in which you know it never it never stops and and no one is lowly enough to be excluded enough. No one excluded before is going to be excluded now. Yeah. I, I think well, it's a very tender passage. Yeah. It, it becomes more tender and more hopeful mm. than more like a concession that Jesus makes, which is the, the, that's the morally troubling part of that for a lot of people. Like, he seems to be not treating her very nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, listen, Sarah, this is, I feel like we're just getting started here. There's, there's so much here to to just rethink some things in the Bible by using, let's say, an informed imagination for thinking about what what these things might mean that we take for granted. But um, we're coming to the end of our time here. And do you have an online presence? Can people find you online? Can they stalk you somehow? <laughs> I am at sarahrudin.com. That is my website. Okay. And my books are all shown there. I'm working on number 10 or 11. It depends on how you figure it. (laughs) Some are written with other people. And some of my poetry is there. So, yes, I would would love people for people to visit me there. Wonderful. And the information on your books and other kinds of things, too, like maybe your speaking schedule or things like that on there, too? Uh, I do not have – I do not – Put my speaking schedule. Oh, you on should there. get that I up there. Probably should get that. Yeah, get that, that up way there. people can say, "Oh, she's in my area. I'm going to go <laughs> right. listen to her." So it's fantastic. So. Right, right. Well, yeah. um, yes. If if anybody is interested in me speaking, visiting, the information is there about about how to um, contact me, and Wonderful. I am very delighted to visit. You know, any kind of religious group, any any kind of any kind of institution, and um, to share about my work. Yes, and I do. I yeah. do this. Uh, it's it's my great delight to talk to a great variety of people. Well, and same here. So, listen, Sarah. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Yeah, wonderful. We learned a lot, and it's just fantastic. So, thank you so much. All right, Sarah. Thank you. See ya. See ya. Bye bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. We really appreciate all of your support. And if you want to continue the conversation and get involved more in the community, you can head to thebiblefornormalpeople.com. There's all kinds of blog posts written by mostly Pete, some of me. But also you can find us online if you don't want to go to, you know, that's kind of old school going to a website. I mean, that's like... Who does that? Websites. Yeah. But you can go to social media. We're there. You can look up Pete. You can look up Jared. You can look up... uh, Instagram? We're on Instagram. Instagram. The Bible for Normal. We're Instagramming all over the place. I mean, it's just... You can see my cat and my dogs and my grandchildren. Yeah. So we hope to see you online, continuing the conversation, or back here next week where we have a brand new episode of The Bible for Normal People. See you then. See you, folks. (laughs) 